I want to close out this brief series on the culture of conflict in which we're living today by posing just one question and doing my best to answer it together. The question is this, how can it get better? (laughs) Uh, Maybe we can't fix it all, but how can we play a part in making the political conversation today more constructive? How do we model a more creative, and I would articulate, a truly Christian kind of discourse around the controversial matters that affect us today? How do we change the conversation in the spheres that you and I have an opportunity to influence? The short answer, I think, is by living out this way of life that's described for us in Romans chapter 12. I think that if we could actually do it, If we could live according to God's calling in this chapter, we would see a change in the nature of our political climate today. Uh, There is a lot more in this text than we're going to be able to do justice to. And uh, I'm just just today going to lift out, if I can, a few bits of wisdom and suggest them as practical takeaways for us as we seek to go out and live uh, as God's servants in the world. And the, the first recommendation... that that I would like to make this morning is is simply this. As you talk with other people, be sincere in expressing your convictions. Okay, be be really sincere, uh, transparent, authentic, and clear about what your convictions are. Paul puts it this way. Love must be sincere. You can't claim to love people and not be sincerely transparent with them about what you believe is going on. Um, Love must be sincere. Therefore, hate what is evil, says Paul. Note he doesn't say hate who is evil. He says hate what is evil. Hate the act of evil as you see it. Cling to what is good. Never be lacking in zeal, Paul writes. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I love the way the RSV renders that one. I used to have it on my mirror in college. Uh, where, he, where he says, uh, uh, never lack in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord. Uh, hate, cling, zeal, fervor, these are strong words meant to describe a passionate, committed, moral life. Now some of you may have possibly construed what I have been saying to you over these past several weeks as an invitation to greater passivity or to silence, or to wishy-washness on moral values. If you have read my teaching along this way as effectively saying, hey, look, we all see things differently, we all care about different values, therefore we should all just hold our tongues here and retreat to our private personal piety, if that's what you've heard me saying so far, I've really failed you. I repent of it, I take it back, if that's what I seem to have said, said. Because on the contrary, Jesus repeatedly challenges his followers to be active, catalytic agents in this world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, You you are the, uh, the substance I intend to be scattered out there to preserve this world against decay. You, you are the presence I long to add vital seasoning to this world in places where it has 
grown bland or unclear or, or false. Uh, some of you will remember those old TV ads for accent food seasoning. I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because you don't want to admit you're that old. But they used, to, they used to have this little trumpet sound that would go, accent wakes up food. Well, in a vastly larger and more important sense, this is the role Jesus wants his followers to play. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the churches of of the ancient time, and he sounds a great clarion call to them. He says, wake up, Christians, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I believe that God is calling the church of Jesus Christ in our age to be part of the wake-up call for our culture, to strengthen those moral values, which if we lose them, ultimately results in a loss for everyone in our culture, whether they are believers or not, whether they see things as we do or not. We need Christians today who are like Daniel was in Babylon, willing to, to live in a different way amidst his culture and speak out for those values. We need Christians like Esther was in Persia, uh, daring to, to stand up against wrong where she saw it. We need Christians like William Wilberforce was in Britain during the time of the, of the slave trade, or like Martin Luther King Jr. was during a time when we'd lost our vision of, of human rights or civil rights. We need Christians that are salt in this earth and, and scattered out in workplaces and communities and the halls of Congress and many other places articulating a Christian vision. Hate the evil God names Hate the evil. Not, don't express hatred to people, but name the evils that, we, that people do, that we do, and, and seek the change that is needed there. Cling to the good that God describes in his word. Hold fast to that. Don't let go of it. Never lack in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord, says the apostle, because your earnest voice and your earnest vote And your earnest activism sincerely matter in our time. Are you with me so far? Okay. That's the first idea that I think we want to hold on to as we think about going out as Christian agents into the world from here. Here's the second one. As we go, let's do it with sober humility. Let's hold our convictions with fervor let us, let us advocate them, motivated by the proper humility uh, that we see even in Christ himself. Uh, you know, if you listen carefully to a lot of the discourse today, it is tinged with an inappropriate self-righteousness. Uh, you listen to a lot of the, of the political commentary, and the smugness, the absolute certainty in self that, that the voices are express is detectable. And, and you know how you can spot it? You listen to somebody from the other side of the political spectrum, and you, and you, and you can feel the pridefulness of it. Contrast that tone with what the apostle says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather... Think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, I was really convicted by this uh, verse as I I pondered it this week because I I hold some of my political viewpoints with a certain level of self-righteousness. I I don't have a lot of doubt 
about some of the, uh, of the viewpoints that I, ho- I hold. Um, I, I, I will, for example, decry the wastefulness that I see uh, going on uh, in many places. The lack of, of commitment to excellent standards and to stewardship. The wastefulness I see government exercising. And I'll, and I'll speak of that with, with, self, with a self-righteous certainty at times. What, I, what I'm slower to get is that I'm, I'm part of a, of a consumer culture and a generation that is arguably amongst the most wasteful persons in the history of the planet. I mean, we consume more food than we need, a lot more than we need. And, and, and we, uh, we chase after items and dispose of them as fast as we get hold of them. Uh, compared to every other generation on the planet uh, and anybody else around the earth right now, we are an extraordinarily wasteful people. And I'm one of the leaders of the pack. Uh, and, and, and yet I can condemn the wastefulness I see over here and be blind to the reality of my own part in a culture of wastefulness. Uh, and, and I need to think with greater sober judgment about that reality. I'll give you another example. I, I believe that one of the great moral tragedies, if not crimes of our time, is the, disposable, is, is the disposal of children before they're born. I think that that while there are particular instances and cases where uh, one could extend grace and understanding to a person that makes a difficult, agonizing, awful choice, that there has, we have come to accept the loss of so many lives in a, in a callous way. And I get very self-righteous about my conviction about these things um, and, and prideful often in my assertion on that particular point. But at the same time, it... it, it it hits me now and then that I am for some reason nowhere near as zealous in my defense of the millions of children alive today who will die before age 10 from entirely preventable diseases or from malnutrition. As I think about buying my next technology toy, I I don't have them in mind. As I condemn the person that doesn't take sanctity of life seriously, I'm remarkably unself-aware about um, my lack of concern for those sacred lives that I do nothing to save. I I have come to believe that as I advance my political opinions, I need to think of myself with sober judgment. I need to not think of myself more highly than I ought. I'm a complicated, inconsistent person in the application of my moral values, and maybe you are too. Let me test that. Let me test that. Can you imagine Jesus walking into the sanctuary today? He comes down the center aisle, and he finds you in the pew. And he he walks up, and there's a look of recognition on his face. And and he says, Gabriel. He's calling one of the angels over. There she is. There he is. The perfect example of everything that I have taught. This is the one that is living out everything that I taught in that flawless way. Can you imagine Jesus coming up to you and saying that? Let me shift the the vision a little bit. Can you imagine Jesus walking into either one of the conventions that have taken place or, or, or into the debate chambers and looking down the list at all the sub points in a in one of the particular 
political platforms and saying, uh, gathering the angels around and saying, finally, a perfect statement of the entirety of the kingdom of God. <laughs> this, this platform completely gets it. We can throw away that other one because this one so perfectly nails everything I care about. Can you imagine that? We need to think of ourselves with sober judgment. We should hate what is evil and cling to what is good, but we should never think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Do not be proud, Paul says later on in the letter, underlining the idea for the second time. And just because he's concerned, nobody's going to get it. He says further on, do not be conceited. The third time, underlining it. Why does the Apostle Paul make such a point of this? Well, he gives us a clue in the opening uh, statement when he says, by the grace given to me, I say this to you. Paul knew as a Pharisee, he had discovered how as a Pharisee, how self-righteous he'd been. And he knew that, but for the grace of God, he, stood, he would stand uh, before perfection himself one day and be found utterly wanting. And one day you and I are going to stand before perfection, the one who knows what righteousness looks like. And we'll walk up there proudly with our, our particular record. And, he, and he's going to sh- show us the videotape, you know? And it's all going to be clear, the massive contradictions and hypocrisy in our way of living. And all of the things he cared about that we just ignored. And we're going to try and say, but, but I did this. And he's going to say, yeah, yeah, but what about, what, about, what about this? And in that moment, there will be no defense. We will fall to our knees in abject humility. And we will know in that moment how much we needed his grace. And praise God, he's, he's offered it to us. In view of that, In view of the grace God has given, can we not manage to live with a greater measure of it in our interactions with one another so that in our pursuit of righteousness, we can show some greater humility now? If we can get that, maybe maybe we can move on to the third step in making the political climate better I want to think about with you. Perhaps we can start to honor what the other side brings. Maybe we can do that. I don't think you could put into one household two people more different than my wife Amy and me. Okay? For one thing, she's female and I'm not. She's blonde, and I used to be brown. She is right-handed, I'm a southpaw. She's from California, and I'm from New York. She tans easily, I burn at the sight of sunshine. Right? She loves um, British movies about sophisticated women who glow. I like American movies about tough guys that bleed. I mean, we are different. And those differences make of our marriage at times a boxing match. I mean, we have never yet physically struck one another. <laughs> but, but, we, but we go at it sometimes and, and with tr- ferocious intensity. You know, and, and, and each of us is just mad as H-E double hockey sticks at the other person. And we're just, in, in those moments, we're entirely sure that person's wrong. And we are completely right. Some of you get this. You've been in these kinds of conversations. 
I've come to discover there are some differences between us that probably will not go away in this life. There are things that the other person cares about that the, the other one will never care about in quite the same way. But, but being in relationship with one another is maybe the kindest thing God has ever done to me or for me, and maybe for Amy too. I'll let her tell you. I mean, if it was not for this 24 years of holy deadlock, a wedlock, <laughs> if we weren't benevolently handcuffed together by the covenant of marriage, we might have run away from this engagement. But this engagement has been redeeming in our lives, you know? I mean, if left to our own, we would have been such extremes in so many different areas. And being together, we've learned to find a more creative life. Um, And I just praise God for that. And I love her all the more now because she is different and she challenges me in ways that I need. What if red and blue were actually like that? Is that possible? What if just like, I don't think it was an accident that God brought Amy and me together. What if it wasn't an accident that God, in his sublime providence, brought to these United States and grew up in these United States people that don't see things exactly the same way because in some measure they need each other? What if God knew that that we're like the left hand and the right hand to each other. We're like the different hemispheres of the brain. We're two halves of a whole heart. What if God desired for us not to continue this war of the roses leading towards a divorce that we're, this is the trail we're on as a culture right now. We're heading for a divorce. I don't know if it'll turn out to be a civil war, but man, it's not good. What if he intended for us to find the, together, the value of the other for the sake of the marriage. What if, what if that's his purpose? Listen to the apostle. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Therefore, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. I have never seen my marriage get better by hammering on the flaws, the weaknesses, the shortcomings, the lack of vision of my partner. That has not been a successful strategy. That was my plan A at the beginning. It's not gone well. But the marriage has gotten better because one of us at various times has had the maturity to say, you know, I can see why you might feel that way. Or tell me more about why you feel that way. Or what you're afraid of or what you're mad about or what you're feeling is being lost. Even if I don't agree with you, I don't agree with you. I honor you. And I want us to find a way to work together. What if red and blue could be like this? 
if thousands of us, millions of us, found somebody on the other side of the house that's now divided and reached out a hand to one another to honor what they bring to the American family. Abraham Lincoln once said, if you would win a man to your side, to your cause, first convince him that he is your sincere friend. Not a strategy, not a ploy, not a game of fakery. First, be a sincere friend. Now, I'm not naive about how difficult what I'm suggesting is. Um, I, I do not believe that just by being a little nicer, extending a few more invitations, everybody in Congress is going to suddenly join hands and sing Kumbaya. I'm not optimistic about that. And we, have, we have, like in a marriage, we've got some permanent differences. Uh, we look at things differently. We value things differently. Uh, we have complicated problems that are going to require choices in which, you know, you can't have it both ways. There's going, to be, there's going to be some difficult forks in the road. But somebody, I'm convinced, has got to drop the boxing glove and stretch out the hand first. Somebody has to be willing to keep showing good faith and good intent, even when the other hauls off and takes a swing at them, even when the other person takes advantage or the other party takes advantage of our dropped guard. There have to be people that are willing to do the right thing, to be the right person, to show that kind of good faith again and again and again. And this is where being a Christian and being a pretending Christian is different. This is where being a Christian first and anything else second is very important to define for yourself. This is where those who put their ultimate hope in the ethic of Jesus part company from people who mention Jesus, but whose hope is in expedience or, or, or political control or tribalism. You have to decide for yourself, and I have to decide for myself, do I think the world is going to change for the better through more of the exercise of the power of Caesar or more of the exercise of the power of Christ and his cross? Where am I putting my greatest hope? If Caesar is your hope, keep swinging. Knock out all the other people you can in the boxing ring. If Jesus is your hope, then refuse to do wrong to those who do you wrong. Refuse again and again to do wrong to those who are doing you wrong. The Apostle Paul is more eloquent. He says it like this. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful. To do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil. And read it out for me. What does he say? But overcome evil with good. That is the Christian difference. And for all of the clamoring about the return to Christian values... How often are you hearing that? How often are you hearing that in our time? Let me suggest one further measure before letting you go. 
And let me warn you, this is the most politically incorrect thing I will have ever said to you. If you want our politics and culture to get better than it is, alongside of all of these other important principles, show yourself willing to sacrifice. Show yourself willing to sacrifice. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, I zealously urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern of this world is winning. The pattern of this world is take your turf and defend it. Get everything coming to you. Knock out people who are takers or free riders. This is the pattern of this world. I understand it. I live it. But it's not fully the pattern to which we've been called as followers of Jesus. We need a renewing of our minds on this. We are not getting out of this mess by demanding more. We're not. We're going to get out of this mess by sacrificing more. We're going to get out of this mess as millions of us turn our minds from entitlement to contribution. As millions of us turn our minds from rewards to responsibility. As millions more shift from thinking, how am I going to survive on my own to how can we thrive together? No politician or government has the power to compel that kind of change of mind. No candidate running, no party out there is going to be able to uh, force us to this kind of transformation. Some new blend of entitlement reform, uh, tax or spending policy measures may help to structure the sacrifice in a way that is reasonably fair, that involves a lot of, of different constituencies rather than asking just one to bear the load. But nothing imposed upon a people can possibly accomplish the fundamental renewal of the American spirit that is so desperately needed in our time. No earthly government can do this. But millions of us can be praying that God will do it. Millions of us can be desiring to see the vision that is imprinted upon our national currency become true again. You've read it. It's there every time you pick up a dollar bill. E pluribus unum. In Latin, it means out of many, one. Only the triune God can accomplish that miracle. Only the God who once took many different members from different tribes and races and social classes and made them one church. Only the God that once took different peoples from many different countries on this land and made them one nation under his sovereignty. Only this God can bring about the revival that is so desperately needed in our time that renews our mind and makes us servants of the whole household again. Pray for this. Pray for that renewal. For if we do not do this, if he does not come and dwell in our midst again, then this house that is divided cannot stand. But if he is in our center, if his spirit is guiding our lives, there is great hope for this household. 
And I hope you will join me in praying for his good will to be done. Amen.